On this week's episode of SSR, we get reacquainted with the Ingalls family, but we are not going to the prairie. Nope, instead, we are going all the way back to the little house in the big woods, the remote cabin in Wisconsin where Laura lived in the years before she and the rest of the crew moved west. Little House in the Big Woods is also the first installment in the beloved and also complicated Little House series. It was published in 1932 and documents the mundane reality of life in 1871. It's a lot of chores, with the occasional pause for Christmas, making maple candy, and a first-of-its-kind trip to town. Episode 230 explores the significance of what is truthfully a pretty boring book. We consider why accounts of this kind of domestic work were so important when the book was written nearly 100 years ago, and why they still appeal to young readers today. We also cover parenting, boredom, prayer, corporal punishment, the nuances of Ma and Pa Ingalls, and why people come back to Little House in challenging times. We touch briefly on the complex conversation around the legacy of the series. But I would recommend you listen to episode 140 about the long winter for a more extensive discussion about that. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing you to someone who has been on my guest wish list since the earliest days of the podcast, Joe Piazza. I've been following and reading Joe's work for years. Joe is the national and international best-selling author of many critically acclaimed novels and nonfiction books, including We Are Not Like Them, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, The Knockoff, and How to Be Married. Her work has been published in 10 languages in 12 countries, and four of her books have been optioned for film and television. A former editor, columnist, and travel writer with Yahoo, Current TV, and the New York Daily News, her work has also appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, New York Magazine, Glamour, Elle, Time, Marie Claire, The Daily Beast, and Slate. Joe holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania in Economics and Communication, a master's in journalism from Columbia University, and a master's degree in religious studies from New York University. She's also a podcaster, and as you'll hear later in this episode, one of her latest podcast projects makes her an especially perfect fit for SSR at this very moment. Jo lives in Philly with her husband and young children, and you can follow her and all of her projects on Instagram at JoPiazzaAuthor and on Twitter at JoPiazza. Jo and I recorded this episode a few months ago, right before she had her third baby, and I am endlessly grateful that we were able to make it happen. If you love what you hear today, which I know you will, it would mean so much to me if you would take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it and post that screenshot to your Instagram story. Please tag me at SSRPod so I can see it and share. You can keep up with all of the newest podcast happenings on Instagram, and I also post on Twitter at SSRPod and on Facebook at the SSR Podcast and the SSR Book Club. Show your support for the show by telling a friend or by leaving a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the first full week of our February book club over in SWR. That's shit we read in Patreon. The book is Jennifer Close's Marrying the Ketchups, which has been on my personal TBR for what seems like forever. There's still plenty of time to jump in and read with us. When you become an SSR patron, you get access to tons of other goodies, including exclusive rapid-fire Q&As with podcast guests, bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, an invitation to our Discord channel, and more. Learn all about the other benefits of Patreon and join in at www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast 
or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. SSR is an independent podcast, so if you enjoy what you hear and the work I do, your contributions, even $1 per month, are incredibly important. If you are looking for the perfect way to treat your book-loving Valentine, or the perfect way to treat yourself, I recommend sneaking a peek at Inkwell Threads. Shop bookish stickers, tees, totes, sweatshirts, and more at www.inkwellthreads.com ssrpod and use code ssrpod at checkout to get 20% off your order. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Joe. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Thanks for having me. We have a Little House Day. And not only do we have a Little House Day, but we have the first ever Little House kind of Little House Day. We are talking about Little House in the Big Woods. And I want to hear from you about the connection that you have not only to this book, but to this series and to Laura Ingalls Wilder. Do you have a connection? Do you have memories of reading these books when you were a kid? So it's so interesting because these books are at my parents' house. I have them. I know that I read them because I was a big reader. I read everything that I could get my hands on. But I did not connect with them in an intensely visceral way that I know that a lot of young girls did. My gateway books as as a as a young girl, young woman were Judy Bloom. Like if you were to ask me what my formative books were, I'd be like, oh, Judy, Blubber, just as long as we're together. <laughs> Sally J. Friedman. I mean I can I can just rattle them off. I was obsessed with Judy Bloom books. But and yet I know I can tell you the broad strokes of all of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books but they didn't hit me the way they've hit a lot of people in my life. Namely, one of my closest friends and podcast collaborators, Glynis McNichol, who has driven me across the country. She drove me across the country when I was moving in with my husband in San Francisco. And during that trip, because she is obsessed with Laura Ingalls Wilder and all of the Little House on the Prairie books, she dragged me to numerous Laura Ingalls Wilder homesteads. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Taking us well off course every time. That's a friend. That's a friend. <laughs> I don't. I don't really drive, so I was really at her mercy, <laughs> and we and we talked endlessly about Laura, to the extent that this year we were working on another podcast I was doing called Under the Influence, and because she won't stop talking about Laura, I finally just said, "Why don't you do a podcast about it then, Glennis? Why don't I executive produce it?" And we'll create a podcast called Wilder about Laura Ingalls Wilder, her life and her legacy, her books, the TV show, and what the hell it all means today. And I heart, let us do it. So I've been immersed in the world of Laura for the past year, researching and producing this podcast. And to do that, I have been rereading 
all of the Laura Ingalls Wilder books and reading them on my own, listening to the audiobooks, which are done by Cherry Jones, which is so mm. good because I'll listen to Cherry Jones read the phone book yeah. and also reading them with my children who are five and three. And so I'm getting an adult perspective and a childhood perspective on the Laura Ingalls Wilder series, particularly Little House in the Big Woods. And as I've been rereading it, I do remember now reading it more as a child and the things that stuck with me, the things I liked and the things that I didn't like. And it's also fascinating to see what my five-year-old is taking away from the books, what he enjoys about them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You said so much there that I want to dig into. The first is that I knew about Wilder. And so to be fair, I didn't really give you a choice. I was like, let's do a Little House book. And you were kind enough to agree. And you chose Little House in the Big Woods, which I don't think I read when I was a kid. So while I did read some of the other books in the series, I think this is the first time for me reading Little House in the Big Woods. And I'm really interested to hear how your five-year-old is reacting as we go through this, because something that I kept thinking about as I was reading this one was like, how does this translate to a kid in 2022 or 2023? Because I'm just going to say up front, like not that much happens in this one. Um, It's a slow, slow burn. And so we did read um, for previous episodes, Little House on the Prairie and The Long Winter. And while, of course, we get similar peeks into their lifestyle, there are a few more like actual events that happen in those books. And so because this book is really just like a peek into their life, I'm curious if it would translate at all to audiences of kids today who clearly have so many other forms of entertainment at their disposal and probably can relate even less to a kid like Laura, who is literally just spending her life watching her parents do chores. Totally. Totally. And I... I talk about this a lot with with Glynis because she is so obsessed with Laura. And I'm like, what is it? What was it about her? And she's like, well, she just seemed like she had this wild existence. She was, Mm. you know, a kind of a tomboy running around on the prairie and living a life that was completely unlike Glynis's and my existence growing up in the suburbs, right? Like she was doing crazy wild prairie things or in the in the woods you know really homesteady kinds of things they're they're making butter they're making bullets for christ's sake and that was exciting for her and that is actually what's exciting for my five-year-old now to me i actually find little house in the big woods you're right nothing happens i mean it's very slow it's so much about the work of the home about how Pa and Ma, like you said, are doing chores. But it's those chores that my five-year-old finds fascinating. He's like, they they make bullets in order to kill the bear to protect the house and to kill the deer for food. It's just like, it's giving him all of these ways to talk about how easy our life is today. And all of the things it's a great entry for me to talk about the things that we take for granted i'm like well we go to the grocery store but they if they wanted to eat they had to make a bullet and go out and hunt and shoot a deer and it wasn't that easy and maybe we shouldn't take these things for granted or maybe you know when laura and mary were bored they were told to figure it out as opposed to my kids who have every book 
on the planet, every television show <laughs> at their fingertips on demand, a whole slew full of stupid ass games. And yet <laughs> they get bored. And, I'm, and I use it as a parenting tool now. I'm like, would Laura and Mary be bored in the little house? <laughs> They, just, they had to go play with a pumpkin, for Christ's sake. And they loved it. And they loved it. And they, they, I'm like, she had one doll. So with that, like, it's those things that they actually are interested in. They're like, that's how you make butter? I'm like, that's how you make butter. I mean, similar, that must have been what I liked as well. I know it's what Glynis liked. Just the idea that there was a different kind of life that wasn't so much so long ago it was a hundred hundred and twenty years ago when i was reading the books and so they still really do enjoy that and they i don't think that for the kids it feels like nothing's happening i think that we're just more critical going in like but where's the plot and kids don't really need a plot they're like oh well it is interesting that they're like how they're making this and and what this is like. One thing for me though is it a little house in the big woods. There's a lot of God mm-hmm. and a lot of prayer on Sunday and what we do on Sundays and like coming from a more agnostic household, like that is completely foreign to my kids and it's something I didn't notice as a kid, but it's really God heavy. Yeah, it is. And so, I mean, that has also opened up a can of worms. But who's God? Like, oh, wow. Okay. There, there's just, there's a lot of conversations happening in my house right now. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because there aren't necessarily events that happen, but there are these big picture themes. So God comes up, Laura's frustration with her many, many roles about the Sabbath and really not being able to do anything on Sundays. Also, of course, this theme of self-reliance comes up again and again. Something that I thought was really, like, it kind of smacked me in the face as far as like the perspective of it all was there's an explicit line in the book about how Laura had never even seen two houses together in this part of her life in the 1870s. Like she really, they, they're so remote and I think it's so easy to lose sight of that. You and I both live in Philadelphia and even if you live in a suburb, I grew up in a suburb or even if you live in a more rural town, rural now is not the same as having never seen two houses next to each other in your entire life. And so I liked that this as an intro to the series was really explicit about exactly what circumstances the Ingalls family is living in. And as a reminder, listeners, at this point, they have yet to make their covered wagon journey, which I I think also I want to make sure I mention before we say anything else, that this book is kind of it's a little bit of a breath of fresh air in talking about the Little House series because when we talked about Little House on the Prairie and the Long Winter, there were a lot of even heavier themes. And this series, of course, has come under fire in recent years because of its inherent racism, particularly against Indigenous folks. And so in this book, that's absent. We don't have to talk about that as much. But I, of course, want to acknowledge that we, over time, are looking at this collection as a whole through a different lens. Um, and I certainly want to be mindful of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we're, and that's something we really explore in the podcast series. And there's so much in the books that it's obviously, it's the perspective, the books are so complicated if you look at them as they are books that are set in the late 1800s, but that were written 
in the 1920s, 1930s by a woman in her 60s, remembering right. her childhood, that are now being read 150 years after that, right? right? So we're dealing with so many different perspectives. We're dealing with a woman living through the Depression, writing about her childhood on the prairie, which is a totally different time. And then we're now looking back on all of it with a critical eye. So there's a, there's a lot to dig up. And there, there are a lot of flaw like the books are flawed in a way, looking at them from a politically correct perspective in 2022. And that's something we're trying to explore in the podcast series is how do you continue to love something that is flawed? And our thesis on that is it's kind of like how we love America because the, the Laura Ingalls books are the story of America, the story of the expansion of America. And we also live in a very flawed country. And so we're kind of juxtaposing those two things throughout the series. Yeah, you are wrestling with a lot of the same questions that I wrestle with here on the podcast, more specific to Little House, of course. But I like that thesis and I think it encompasses a lot of the conversations that we've had on SSR too. So let's dig into a couple of the more specific themes that we see in this book. You spoke about God and how God comes up again and again. Something else that kind of shocked me was how many times corporal punishment comes up in this book. The number of times that we see Pa spanking, or I think the word is used like tanning, um, tanning. or ripping is used. Tanning, tanning or hide, yeah. Over and over. And there are references to it with Laura and Mary's cousins. Like I want to say there are five or six times in the book where there are specific references to spanking or tanning or whipping and I'm not here to like get into all of that but I do think that we in 2022 are just like not exposed to such obvious and like kind of shameless references to this kind of parenting and this kind of punishment and it was it was shocking I don't really remember that from the other books yeah no it is it's shocking to read on the page and I'm also very I'm very lucky when I read it out loud to my five-year-old, he can read, but he's not following along. Mm. So word for word, especially because we relate it like at night when he's tired. You're gonna hear yeah. him. You can you can probably hear him by the way. Yeah, he's he just wants to participate. <laughs> always, always. They're also off school for so-called fall break this week. Mm. So I can skip over some of those parts, and I have, and but I haven't skipped over all of them. And again, I think it's a really interesting learning moment to be like this is how children used to be punished and not a hundred for the majority of history of parenting right it's only very recently that we've we've gone in the other direction with what it means to touch a child and touch a child's body and consent and it's it's opened up some great conversations for us about like you know do mommy and daddy ever hit you and then he just laughs at me because who's the boss in this household and he's like <laughs> no and then he's like b hits me and then his sister does like punch him and i'm like okay we don't touch each other's bodies but <laughs> i i think it is interesting but, but but then my husband has brought it up too because then my son felt very comfortable then asking my husband he's like did your parents spank you and he's like yes this is how i was punished and just ha and talking about how things change with them has you know, let us talk about things, which has been really interesting. I do think it's jarring for us to see it now, but a good reminder, I, a good reminder for me that parenting is so 
malleable. The ways that we are a good parent are constantly changing. Because I would not say, despite the tanning of the hides, I would not say that Pa and Ma are bad parents. No. I think they are very good parents, actually. The fact that, you know, Laura got through everything that they got through. I think Pa is manic as fuck. But I do think that they are good, solid parents. That's just the way that it was done. And it reminds me that we're constant. society is constantly shifting how we view, quote, good parenting and how we do this and what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. Totally. I'd love to talk even more about the parents because we've had some different kinds of conversations about Ma and Pa over the years on the show. Mm. The first time we talked about Little House on the Prairie was very early in my podcasting career. And all that I really knew how to talk about at that time was what was directly on the page and what I liked about the book. And so it was pretty 1D in that way. I also grew up with old VHS tapes of the series and as a member of a family with all sisters and I very much have a girl dad and I always felt very connected to Michael Lanzon on the TV show and so I had like a lot of paw worship when I came into that first episode. When we talked about The Long Winter, it got more complicated, A, because I had some more years under my belt as a podcaster, but also because I just think he becomes more nuanced with every book from the series that you read and when we were talking about The Long Winter, there was more conversation about how like in 2022, 2023, generally like in contemporary times, I don't know that many people would tolerate a lot of Pa's whims. And like you said, just like his bullshit, like he he is very manic. He has all of these up and down desires and interests. And I think we could probably like psychoanalyze him forever if we wanted to. But based on what we have on the page, he would be a hard person to be married to. And Ma just like kind of follows him and does whatever he wants. And I think that my guest on the episode about the long winter and I were kind of joking about the fact that like today, Ma's parents would probably like not be that thrilled that their daughter had married Pa because he's just kind of like dragging her all over the place and not really following through on all of the things he says he's going to do to support his family. And since we are seeing them in this very like paternalistic light that's a failure on his part so I do think the conversation about Pa is very nuanced and I love your take on on it especially since you're so immersed in the world yeah absolutely I don't know if Laura's parents would have been psyched or if Caroline's parents would have been psyched for her to marry someone like Pa I think that a lot of men were like Pa in fact I think yeah probably the majority of men back then were like Pa. It was very American manifest destiny. We will keep moving and keep moving and nothing is good enough and we'll never feel settled and our vast fortune is just around the corner. That seems to be ingrained in the majority of men from that era, whether they were homesteaders or whether they were railroad robber barons, right? And Women, because women have been subjugated since the beginning of time and forced into roles as wives and caregivers, were just along for that fucking ride. And reading it as a modern woman, you look at Caroline Ingalls, who is a real person. And when I was a kid, I did not think about Laura Ingalls Wilder as a real human. I read these as fiction. Reading them now, you're reading them as auto-fiction autobiography with a tinge of artistic license. But 
Caroline Ingalls was a goddamn champion, but also just indicative of the majority of women at the time who had no choice, who had no agency, who had to go along with whatever her husband said, because what else is she going to do? You can't be a single woman alone on the prairie. And I think a lot of the, a lot of Caroline's actions and what we see of her and some of the things we can criticize her for, one of the things that comes up again and again in the podcast is Caroline's thoughts on the Native Americans and how terrified she is of them and some of the racial slurs she uses against Native Americans. And you think about what it was like for her to be left alone for her by her husband for days and weeks on end caring for babies, two or three babies alone during a time when strangers, including Native Americans, can just come in your house and take whatever they want because you're squatting on land. You're living there illegally. And when you put it in that perspective and think about it, all of it just seems terrible. Like, I, I was like, this book should just be renamed. Like, everyone is awful to each other. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Unless they're playing the fiddle. <laughs> Unless they're playing the fiddle. And life was terrifying for mm. everyone. But what does come across to me is the world that she, and maybe I'm very nostalgic about this because I'm about to become a mom again for the third time. And I, I do see how hard she tried to create a safe world for her children no matter what was happening out there right like a bear is attacking and she is creating a story to be like it's okay we're all okay everything's gonna be all right because those kids were five and under they were little babies and i see see myself in a lot of what caroline does when I will do anything to keep my children safe, to keep them calm. As bad things are happening in the world around us, I'm trying to create a a safe place for them to live in. And I think Caroline did that. And I think that Laura does paint her mother in a very beautiful light in that way. I also think that she just does so much work, so much labor in the home. She is the one who is making all of the meals, who is taking care of everyone. So many women do that, but we're seeing her do this from scratch. We're seeing her do this with nothing. And it's such a good reminder now in 2022 of the unseen, uncredited, and unpaid labor that all women are doing. Because we're physically seeing Caroline Ingalls do this work on the page in Little House in the Big Woods and then in Little House in the Prairie. Yeah, I think in that way, this book and this series in general does celebrate domestic work in a way that many other pieces of media today don't, because that's really like there was just so much to it. And whenever I have read the Little House books as an adult, I am reminded of the fact that Ma and Pa were probably in their late 20s or early 30s. Yeah, they were. Mm-hmm. They were like, and I am 32 years old. And so when I think about the fact that Ma was probably several years younger than I am now and left alone in the middle of nowhere with, like you said, Joe, all of these children and all of these other things to take care of, I have so, so much respect for the kind of person that she was. And like you said, this sort of like safe universe that she created for her children. And I think something like very sweet about Laura and about this family and these books in general, and it, it brings me back to that place, is this this very um, naive, childlike 
sense of knowing in your heart, in your stomach, in your gut, that as long as your parents are around, everything is going to be okay. And that feeling is so beautiful and tender, and it obviously gets lost in adulthood. But the way that these girls look at their parents, and of course, Laura has a particular worship kind of relationship with Pa, but the way that they look at their parents and think about their parents, if you're lucky enough to have even a shred of a positive relationship with your parents, I think you can't help but go back to that feeling when you read these books because that's what it's about. Like these people provide ultimate safety Mm -hmm. under very unsafe circumstances for their children. And that just makes me feel like settled in a weird way. Well, and I think it makes a lot of people feel settled. We saw a surge in sales and reading of the entire Little House series during the pandemic. And it's happened during different shakeups in the country. It's happened it's happened during various recessions. It's happened during various times of strife. People have returned to these books over and over again to find comfort in the home and in the family unit. And I think that is what these books and it's what the television show that was loosely based on the books provided for people in an uncertain world. It provided comfort and safety and security. And the irony of that is that Laura was living in the most insecure world possible. And they're living in, they're, they're just, they're constantly living on the Western border of this country, which is loosely defined. There are wars being fought all around them. But I think the whole point of Little House in the Big Woods is that they were in this little house in the big woods with their yeah. family and they felt safe no matter what was going on outside pa and ma made them feel safe and that is a message that i think a lot of people want to hear especially in times as uncertain as ours i agree and i i do have a theory in addition to the one you just shared about why people myself included will stick with a book like this, even though nothing seems to happen. So here's my theory. It's meditative and it is like watching somebody's vlog. Yeah. Like, why am I sitting around watching somebody show me their grocery haul? Why am I sitting around watching somebody explain to me how they budget? And I do occasionally watch these vlogs, okay? I'm not proud of it, but I do it sometimes. We all do. We all do. Like, it's very meditative. It takes you out of your own tedium and reminds you that other people also have to deal with the boring business of life. And I just find that it, like, I'm not somebody who meditates, but there's something about watching somebody live their life that I'm like, maybe this is what people talk about when they talk about meditating. Because I feel like I'm leaving my body a little bit. I'm just watching somebody in the rhythms and routines of their own life. And it feels really good. And so this whole like vlog culture seems to me like the best contemporary analogy for a book in which mostly what's happening is like you said, making bullets, making cheese, making milk, making butter, rounding up the cattle, like all of these things. I would, I guess in 2022, they could vlog all of that. Exactly. Exactly. I think, and for me, I think it's not the vlogging; it's the it's the, the like, scrolling Instagram to peep each peep people's houses, right? Like, yeah. I want to see your home decor. I want to see you baking <laughs> pie. I think it is the old school equivalent of that. 
I want to see you churning the butter and make sewing the curtains and there's something it's like meatloaf con content it's calming yes. it's soothing and for children it does remain fascinating for children it frankly is still an adventure and I think we lose sight of that as grown-ups it seems boring but their lives were so raw and so different from the way that we live now that for kids today it does seem like something like really really different they don't care that like i said they don't care that nothing's happening right we do get a few breaks in the monotony in little house in the big woods and i wanted to call those out briefly so i loved the section where we get to go to laura and mary's grandparents house and they have a whole dance that oh, is yes. basically like sugar themed the whole theme of this event is maple syrup and turning it into maple candy and we spend so much time, not just in this book, but in the series as a whole, again, like watching them live their lives in their little house with their family unit. And so getting to go with them to another location, they never get to go anywhere. So going with them, seeing how they react to that, they get to play with their cousins. They get to see all these other adults. We even get a little bit of a, a glimpse of Ma and Pa's backstory because Laura talks about how before she married Pa, Ma was really fashionable and she had dressmakers make special clothes for her. So we get these like glimmers of whatever the 1870s version of glamour for these people would have been just because these girls are watching their mom get dressed. And I remember when I was little, like watching my mom get dressed to go out to a dinner or a party. And so they do that. And then they, they watch her interact with all of these other women as they get ready. And then they're all dancing. Like I just thought it was really kind of magical to see them a out of their element and b taking in taking in this like celebratory vibe because so much of their life is hard work and just drudgery and so they're seeing people dance and make music and to top it all off they get to eat all this candy so much maple do you know how much maple sugar candy i've had so, to buy my kids really uh, <laughs> it's so it is so good <laughs> it's so good it's delicious and we also we we do have maple trees that we tap. We have tapped maple trees in our yard, not in, not in Philadelphia, but up in up in the Catskills where we go. And so that has opened up a whole world of this is what oh, like, oh my it. gosh, Laura gets maple syrup, we get maple syrup, and now I want all of the maple sugar candy. But I think it's also such a nice reminder not to take the good times for granted, but then also not to let the bad times dominate. Yeah. Like everything, right? These people could have been seriously depressed. Their lives were so hard. And yet the majority of, of, of the chapters are very joyful and very celebratory, including the massive celebration around sugar snow season and the maple syrup harvest. And they really they really did know how to throw a party didn't they in the they, big woods. yeah they do they, they, they sure, really they, do they sure did a big woods banger <laughs> it was a big woods banger is what it was i yeah. maybe that's that would be a good alternative title for the maybe for yeah maybe subtitle subtitle but again just a reminder that it was evokes this sense of coziness and of family coming together and also community, you know, because Laura is surrounded by her relatives and her cousins in a way that my children are not. And so I think that they find that really novel in a way of, oh my, why she's so many cousins. She has so many, so many people around her to, to, to like play with, which my kids 
don't have. I'm an only child. And so they find that fascinating. So there are these, there's moments of darkness, there's moments of loneliness, but I think what the big takeaway is the joy and the comfort and the finding of the joy and the celebrating the joy when you can get it because life is hard. And I think that is also something that we've lost sight of. I can talk about how bad the news cycle is all day long, how bad it actually is and how bad the media makes it for us to just constantly be ha- have bad news thrown in our faces. And I think it's very easy for us to lose sight of the joys in life. And Laura's books offer us reminders that we need to celebrate those moments. Yeah, there's a real romanticization of the little things. I remember that from the show as well. We are recording this in the middle almost of the holiday season. And I think about the Christmas episode and the joy that they get from these like very small to us little gifts in their stockings. And we see that in Little House in the Big Woods as well. Like everything just feels romantic and special. The other kind of exciting moment in this book is that they get to go to town and Laura has never been to town. And so it's such a production. Even Ma is up late the night before getting their breakfasts ready. They all pack into the wagon and, and Laura comments on how she didn't even know the sky was so big and she sees the lake. Like these are things that I know I take for granted and I know many of us take for granted. And we see Laura kind of getting uncharacteristically overwhelmed and shy when they go to the store. And we're used to her being so outgoing and so sure of herself and just the sight of all of these things on shelves it kind of blows her mind and so I just love when we see characters out of their element in a new environment one of my writing teachers always says if you don't know what to do with your characters just move them put them somewhere you wouldn't expect and of course this is as you said Joe auto fiction so this is something that we are made to believe really happened but it is just refreshing as a reader to see these characters out of their little house and taking in a whole new environment and even though it makes me sad to see Laura unsure of herself it's cool to know that like this was a big a big moment for her oh yeah it was it was a huge moment but that's that's such good writing advice right if if your characters are getting a little boring or a little stale take them somewhere crazy right for them (laughs) town was crazy one of the coolest things that I've gotten to do this year is I've now been to the little house in the big woods twice. I oh, wow. yes, yes. I again, Glennis has dragged me to these more than wow. on more than one occasion. The yeah. first time we were was not during that first cross country road trip. It was we were on a book tour together when my novel Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win came out and her memoir No One Tells You This came out. And we were driving from Minnesota to Wisconsin and we went to the little house in the big woods which is in Pepin Pepin Wisconsin right on the shores of the Mississippi River and my son took his first steps there that's amazing right outside it's a recreation of the little house it's but it's the same size and wow it's so you go in and it's so tiny um and Charlie took his first steps there and then for the podcast we went back this summer and spent some time in Pepin which is just a lovely little little riverside town it's it's great we have the best we have the best pie of our lives there uh you drive from pepin the little town on the shore of the river and you drive the seven miles which laura describes in the books up to the cabin through still most like it's mostly farmland and some some forest most of the big woods are no longer big woods but you see how far they had to travel on foot and it's a windy road and it is it's a fairly steep road and it's not an easy journey going to town was a big fucking deal it was a 
big deal. Like, even though it's seven miles, it is a far seven miles. So that was, and you can sense Laura's excitement. That's one of the moments I think that you can tell that Laura, looking back at this in her 60s, could still picture every moment of that day, right? And again, I find it fascinating that she was writing all of this as a fully grown woman who had gone through it, who had got like, not even just the things she went through in the books, but like her whole life was very hard after the books too. And when she, before she wrote the books, she was very, very poor. Like the fact that she was able to write these books and become kind of a celebrated author so late in her life is just extraordinary, which is something, I mean, now I'm coming at it as a reporter, right? So I know all of this, but now I can't get it out of my head. Of course. Well, you've already offered us so many great insights about this book, given all of the knowledge that you've acquired. To sort of wrap it up, though, how would you say that Little House in the Big Woods and even the series as a whole has has aged? Um, and how do you how do you kind of absorb all of this now versus the little that you knew about it when you were a kid? I knew nothing about it as a kid. And, <laughs> and also, well, one, when you're a child, you don't think about any of this. Even right. children today, my kids don't think about it. Um, I know, I do know that some of my friends' older children often point things out, but my kids don't, except for the fact that they will say, because they go to a very progressive, wonderful Montessori school, when the word Indians is in the book, they're like, we call them Native Americans. And I'm like, yes, we do. Because that's... Nice. That's why why we're sending you to that school. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So... They like that's that's the extent of where they're at with with correcting the the record at this point. But looking at it from, I don't know how useful, honestly. And I'm choosing my words carefully because everyone has to choose their words carefully these days. But I don't know how helpful looking at it from our 2022 perspective is, unless we're truly going to parse and dissect what the world was like at the time. And we have a whole episode of the series where we're trying to do that because I think a lot of people read the little house in the prairie books and it was probably their first introduction to the westward expansion and it was definitely it was definitely mine and I didn't know any of the real history surrounding it Laura leaves out a lot of the violent context of where America was at that point from the books um we don't get much of a sense of all of the American government and native wars that were going on miles from where they were. There's a lot of absence of storytelling around how the Homestead Act came to be, how the Ingalls get their land. The fact that they're just coming out of the Civil War is something we they hardly even touch on. So there's just, there's a lot of absence of context in the books themselves that I think Laura chose to leave out because, again, let's think about the perspective of her writing this as a woman in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. I think she wanted to create something that was lighter, that was not dark, that would allow children to enjoy this journey and this adventure and she chose to leave out a lot of that violence um, and a lot of that historical perspective and so we're looking at it from our 2020 
two lens of what a woman in the 20s, 30s, and 40s chose to leave out of books from the late 1800s. So it's just, there's just so many layers of it. Yes. Right? And there's so much absence of perspective and history. But then you also have to think, how much of that can you put into a book for children? I agree with all of that. And listeners, if you want to dig into those layers that Joe referenced, you got to check out Wilder. And I'm so grateful that you shared some of the insight that you've gained from that experience here. Other than Little House in the Big Woods, Joe, what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners? Oh my gosh. So I just finished a book last night that I have been hand selling to, to people. Um, we All Want Impossible Things from Catherine Newman. And I don't know, it's a novel, and I do not know if my pregnancy hormones are through the roof. But I bawled for three hours, but I also laughed. It's hilarious. It's wonderful. It's a story about best friendship and, you know, a friend taking care of another friend while she is in hospice and actively dying. But the love between these two women is so intense that I just adored it. I read it in one fell swoop from 10 at night till about three in the morning which is terrible because I'm a hundred months pregnant right now. And I can't recommend it enough. I really, really enjoyed it. Great. Well, I will include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Joe, as you know, I have been a big fan of yours for a long time. You and I have kind of been in touch in the journalism, podcasting, reading, writing world forever. And so I know that you have so much out there for listeners to consume. Uh, and I will make sure that there are links to all of your books, all of your podcasts, everything else that you have going on in the show notes. But I also know that as this episode drops, you have a book out for pre-order. So can you tell us a little bit about that before we sign off? We do. We do. So I we have, I have another book coming out with my co-author, Christine Pride, who I co-wrote We Are Not Like Them with. And so when the show airs, it'll be coming out in just a few months. It's called You Were Always Mine. And like We Are Not Like Them, it explores race in intimate spaces. This time it is about a black woman who finds an abandoned white baby and decides to foster her and the impact that that has on her relationship with her husband, her entire community, her view of herself as a mother or not a mother, and then also her relationship with the um, white birth mother. And it's, it's great. It's different from We Are Not Like Them, but I think it gives people and book clubs a lot to chew on, a lot to talk about, a lot of ways to talk about race in America today that might help you start conversations and ask questions you may have been uncomfortable about broaching before. And so, yeah, that is called You Were Always Mine. It is available for pre-order right now. We are also st already starting to book our book club appearances. We did hundreds and hundreds of book clubs on Zoom and in person for We Are Not Like Them, and we're planning on doing that for You Were Always Mine. So we're bumping up book clubs that are pre-ordering the book. So if you want to pre-order the book, for your book club and then reach out to us. We will make sure you are on our schedule for book club appearances from the two of us. Um, well, we are going to have to talk about that because we have a book club through the SSR Patreon. And maybe oh my gosh. We can make yes. that happen. That'll be so fun. So fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, so we are we're just so excited about that. And we're also working on the We Are Not Like Them television show right now oh as well yeah so christine and i are writing 
that as we speak we just there's a and you know i just gave birth so there's a lot going on yeah we're for context listeners we are recording this in november and this is while in February, I'm, yes, so while, I'm, I'm while you're 100 months pregnant 100 so months pregnant, so many other things yeah. could even happen so more many things could happen between now and when you're listening to this but um joe i will make sure to include links to pre-order your new book um we will talk about the book club thing that would be so fun it was really fun connecting with you and i appreciate you making the time and your very busy schedule to spend spend this hour with us this has been wonderful thank you so much bye bye ssr is part of the frolic podcast network find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts thanks so much for listening to the ssr podcast check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information and be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. <laughs>